the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Ron, it's the word to stand on. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. This is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and life questions. We'll do the best that we can. All you have to do is call us. Dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local area. You can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by mailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions in that way. If you're driving in your car, especially with the wet streets out there today, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature uh, on your phone. Use the free KSLR mobile app. There's one banner. It'll say call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time. Our main phone number is 340-9585. Because it's Monday, we've got our normal Monday night Bible studies going on. The ladies, you can watch uh, tonight uh, on live stream at calvarysa.com or you can join the ladies here at 7 o'clock. Paula will actually be teaching tonight. Uh, they are in the book of Judges. I think I think they're still dealing with Gideon, which is a great character study. So that's tonight at 7. But we have the men at the same time. Uh, high schoolers and junior high school age kids uh, are also during the same time. So uh, it's a great time for your whole family. Okay, let me get to questions while we await your phone calls. Here's the first one. And obviously this is a brand new question. Monica wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on Rachel Held Evans' death this weekend? Um, Monica, I was not a follower of Rachel Held Evans. I uh, know of her and have read a little bit of her stuff, but um, uh, obviously a death is a sad thing. She has young children and a husband. I think she was uh, in her uh, mid to late 30s, I think 37, 37 my producer's telling me, um, um, uh, she gained a, a great deal of notoriety. She was somebody who started out in her walk with the Lord as a conservative evangelical, um, but just drifted away. She she drifted away. She became an Episcopal, um, uh, Episcopalian, I guess is the proper way to say it. Uh, and and basically, um, what what she did was drift away from the faith. Um, she became a um, a champion of LGBTQ um, full inclusion in the church. Um, she wrestled with questions that um, really weren't were questions that didn't need, didn't need to be wrestled with. I think she was one of those people that had such an empathy for others uh, that she allowed her feelings to lead her into error. Now, you asked me what her thoughts on her death were. I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. But any death at 37 years of age is unexpected and a tragedy for those who are left behind. Um, whether uh, 
Um, Ms. Evans was a, uh, a real believer or not. I have no way of knowing that's between uh, her and God, and, and that's settled. But um, there, there was serious doctrinal error, um, heretical error in some of her, her positions, and that would concern me. But um, we're, we're sad anybody dies young. We're sad that there are people who are left behind that are grieving. Um, there is a great deal of outpouring online um, about her, both pro and con, as you can imagine. Here's what I would say, Monica, that we all need to do. We, we just need to um, pray for her surviving family, um, a husband and two children that that um, are now without a wife and a mom. Um, I, I think the saddest thing of all here, and I'm sure the family... Uh, shares her doctrinal positions, so that's not an issue, uh, at least practically for them. But but here's the thing, as, as a pastor, there's nothing that frightens me anymore than people believing error is okay, because it's not. I can't judge what she really believed. I can't believe judge whether or not she had a real relationship with Jesus or not. None of that's my business. That's just the purview of God himself. But here's what I can say. She was used by an enemy to lead people astray, to give people comfort in their sin. Um, At some point in her life, she made the decision that the real Jesus, the Jesus revealed to us in the Bible, uh, wasn't sufficient. And so she created a completely different Jesus. And that's always problematic. That's always problematic. And I think it's a warning, Monica, for all of us to watch very carefully what Paul says to Timothy, our life and doctrine closely. Doctrine matters. Having the real Jesus matters. And any of us, if we get a little bit spiritually lazy, if we begin to drift away, if we begin to try to find answers to questions that there are really no answers to, then we're all in danger of drifting away from that which is true. And once we do that, we have very little value. Uh, There were times when People would refer to her or write emails to me about some of the things that she taught and wanted my um, perspective on it. And, and, and the things that she would write would infuriate me. On the other hand, there were people who knew her and said she was kind, she was loving. And so I know she's going to be missed. And for all of that, I'm sad. So that's the best I can do. If you're looking for me to judge her soul, uh, Monica, I cannot do that. Here's a question from Abby. Uh, I had a friend who told me that only obedient Christians are going to be raptured and the rest of us left behind. How obedient do we have to be to be included? Well, Abby, this is one of those questions that you don't want to unsettle. Let me first say this, that if you're a real Christian, a real believer, you're going to be raptured. It doesn't matter whether you're an obedient Christian or a, or a, a, a Christian who's walking closely with Jesus or not. Every born-again believer at the rapture of the church is going to be taken away. Before the great tribulation, remember, by believing in Jesus, the wrath of God has already been poured out for our sins. Fortunately for us, not on us, but on Jesus instead. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so once our sins are washed away positionally, well then we're fully and completely His, and He's coming for all of His when it's time to bring His church to heaven to be with him. So it's not going to be a partial rapture. It's not going to be, you have to be good. It's going to be, are you really saved? Are you born again? Jesus knows. I always have the suspicion that everybody knows if they're really saved or not. They're really saved. They're not going to have those doubts. But at the same time, you need the comfort of knowing that when Jesus comes to get us, he's going to take everybody. Here's the problem. As I look at your question, Abby, and um, and this is troubling to my heart. This is how obedient do we have to be to be included. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And your question suggests that you are being disobedient and you're doing so with the knowledge of your disobedience. And then I would surmise that you're trying to be content that, well, God understands or God accepts you the way you are. And what Jesus wants us to be is obedient. 
a very, very difficult thing to try to walk that line between how much can I get away with and still be saved? And I've said this before in this program, I think the Bible is intentionally written to make every disobedient Christian, I'm talking willfully disobedient, nobody can be perfect, but willfully disobedient Christians, when you read your Bible, you're going to feel insecure in your faith. The Bible says people who live like this and it lists a whole bunch of sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that means you're not going to be saved. So why even mess with it? Instead of seeing how much we can get away with and still be saved, why wouldn't we want to pursue being as close to Jesus as we possibly can where there's absolutely no doubt? You know, Abby, the Bible says Jesus is speaking. He says, abide in me and I'll abide in you. And that's all you have to do to have security of your salvation, to have the security of going to heaven in the rapture, all you have to do is abide in Christ. And when you're with Jesus, you won't do the same things that you're going to do when you're not. It's that simple. Being with Him changes you. So my hope and prayer, Abby, is that you'll just want to get so close to Jesus that you'll have no doubt at all about where you are in Christ. Here's a question. I think this is right. It's from Merit. Uh, Pastor Ron, can you please explain the seven churches of Revelation in terms of are they real or are they symbolic? Um, They are real for sure, but they're also prophetic. I don't like the word symbolic, but they are prophetic. Let me try to explain, Merit. Uh, Jesus chose seven churches in Asia Minor. Um. Not the biggest churches or the most influential churches. In fact, by the the content of the letters, we can see that some of them were very small and and had very little in the way of resources. Um, But he picked them for a reason. And he picked them because those real historical churches had traits inside the church that would apply to all churches through all times. Additionally, in the order that he wrote to them, we have churches and church ages, church ages that are best described by those traits that are written. The church at Ephesus was the apostolic church. And we still have churches that are are um, thriving there. They're, they're, they're not apostles, but they have apostolic-style ministries. They go out and they plant other churches, and they follow the vision that God has given them. I think the warning in Ephesus is especially germane to those of us living uh, all these thousands of years later. And, and, and Jesus said to him that, you know, you're going through the motions. You've got everything together. You're, you're testing those who claim to be apostles but are not. But Jesus says, I have one thing against you. You've lost or you've left your first love. In other words, they were going through church motions, but what they weren't doing is remaining close to Jesus, remaining intimate with Jesus, and they started doing church instead of being the church. And certainly, Merit, we can see that there are a whole bunch of people, professing Christians, some of them genuine believers, who simply fall out of love with Jesus. And the result is their walk becomes a little stagnant, a little cool. Paul says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, the, the, the Christian who's lost their love for Jesus, is a Christian who's lost his or her zeal. So they are both real and historic, but they're also prophetic and apply to us. One other comment here, Merritt, about the prophetic value uh, all of the traits in the seven letters are applicable to Christians today, 2,000 years later, nearly 2,000 years later. Think about the church at Laodicea. You're a lukewarm church. Jesus says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. We have lukewarm churches. We have lukewarm Christians. And in spite of what Jesus tells us about how he thinks, we, we, we often don't make changes. Think about Thyatira, the religious church. We have people going to religious churches all the time. And yet they've completely lost touch with the God of those churches. 
And so it's really important. We've kind of taken an approach in our culture that if I go to church, I'm doing the religious thing and it's okay. Jesus reminds us over and over that it's not okay, that church is about him and about being with other believers. So um, all of those things apply in our churches. So they are both real, historical, and they are prophetic. You know, when I teach the book of Revelation, I think I've taught it three times here at Calvary Chapel. One of the things that that uh, always discouraged, they want to get right to the good stuff. Let's get to the judgments. Let's get to, to, to the, all the symbolism. Um, but Jesus starts that book in a very specific way. In chapter 1, verse 19, we get the outline of the book. John is told to write the things that are. That's the seven churches. They're in existence at the time before that. He says, write what you've seen. He's going to see this vision of Jesus in chapter 1. So that's the outline. Chapter 1, write what you've seen. Write the things that are. And then beginning in chapter 4, he's told to write the things that will be. And that's the prophetic value of the book. Bill Merritt, I hope that's an explanation. Uh, it took me, I've taught it four times, I'm just told. Um, it took me uh, seven weeks here at Calvary Chapel to teach the seven churches one a week. So there's a lot of really important information there. And I suggest, recommend very, very strongly that uh, people ought to read those letters and let the Spirit of God convict them and, and change them. Before I go to the next question, you know that these that, that question in particular sort of um, reminded me of yesterday in, in the Bible study we did where I was challenging the, the people, and I believe the Holy Spirit was challenging the people in our church to be changed. And I think the seven letters to the churches in Revelation will do the same thing. It, it, it convicts us of wanting to stay where we are. It, 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 it motivates us to come to Jesus, make the corrections that, that, that he sees necessary in our walk. And then what we do is we come to him in his terms and we're forever changed. And wherever it is that you went to church and whatever the message was that you heard from the Word of God, my prayer for all of you and my prayer will continue to be that you didn't leave church the same man or woman that you were when you got there. My prayer will be that, that you'll let His Word change you every time. Help us to fall more in love with Jesus. For those of us who sort of lost our first love and we've fallen out of love with Him, well, well, then we can repent. Just like he told the church at Ephesus. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. Repent because that's sin and then return to the things you did at first. And that's the value of going to church. You can be changed, transformed, your mind renewed every single day. So, hope that helps. 340 here is an anonymous question who says, A friend who led me to Christ fell into terrible sin. I'm so discouraged because I thought he had it all together. Why do some seemingly solid believers mess up so bad? It makes Christians look bad. Anonymous, the last thing we need to worry about is whether it makes Christians look bad or not. I know the world looks at us when we fall into sin, they say hypocrite this or hypocrite that, but, but we, we're tough, we can take that. That's not the issue. I understand your discouragement. I've had people that I thought were following Christ with all of their heart, who had terrible things going on in their lives. If they were really Christians, God's always going to make sure that their sin is revealed. And so when that, that happens, especially when that's somebody who is a high-profile Christian, somebody who's a public leader, um, it, it just shipwrecks the faith of so many. What we need to do is remember this basic principle. None of us anonymous has it together. Not a few of us, none of us has it together. The only thing that keeps us together is the presence of the Lord. And your friend here who led you to Christ and now he's fallen away, 
um, what happened is he lost touch with Jesus. And the Bible says, in our flesh is no good thing. And what that means to us as believers is that whenever we're led by the flesh instead of the Spirit, we can be sure we're going to fall and we're going to disappoint others. We're going to crush some people's hearts. We need very, very carefully to stick so close to Jesus that we can't mess up because he's there with us in relationship with real power. So pray for your friend. Understand that every believer, solid or not, is going to mess up. Pastor Ron is going to mess up badly if I get any distance between me and Jesus. And that does one of two things. It either terrifies me or it motivates me to stay close to Jesus. Your friend just lost touch with Jesus. 340-9585. Let's go to Bob on line one from San Antonio. Bob, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Uh, I have a problem that I've never heard addressed. Uh, I was, a, I am, I, was, I still am a born-again Christian, but when I got married, I married a Jewish girl, and we can, well, I converted, became Jewish. When she died, remember, well, we got, died, and she got, we got divorced, and the temple says I'm Jewish, and I'm still Christian, but I married her because I loved her, I thought, and I don't know what to do. Are you there? When, when you, yeah, I'm, I'm listening, Bob, and I'm praying. Is, okay. When you say you don't know what to do, do you mean about leaving the Jewish synagogue? Right, or, no, I, or... Okay, I, I, I was a born-again believer, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately, I fell in love with a Jewish girl. And yes, when, we married, when we married, uh, I converted to uh, Judaism. And uh, I went through, you know, the myths and everything, and they said I was Jewish, and that once you're Jewish, you're Jewish for life. And now she's gone, and I'm Jewish. And I'm, yeah. in my mind, still Christian. So Yeah, Bob, I, I understand completely now, and, and I have an answer for you that I, that I hope will be very encouraging. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul was a Jew. In fact, he said he was a Jew of Jews. And he converted to Christianity and, and became a Christian. You can't unconvert. If you believe in Jesus, you can't unconvert. Now, I would never uh, counsel somebody to convert to another religion because of somebody they're marrying. I would say that the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And, and my counsel prior to the marriage would have been, don't do it. And this is why, because it always brings these kind of problems. The, the truth is, Jews can be Christians. Christians can honor Judaism. However, in doing so, they're losing the intimacy with God that only comes with grace. So, Bob, here's what I would tell you to do. I would tell you to, to um, remember the day you were born again, Come to Jesus and say, I'm so sorry for converting. Uh, I made the wrong decision, but now I want to come home. And he would, with open arms, welcome you, get back into a Bible-teaching Christian church and start walking by the power of the Holy Spirit and letting the Lord fill you afresh and give you a new plan, a new direction. I'm sorry for the loss of your wife, uh, but, but this is a time now you need Jesus to run back to him Come home. Um, Bob, the book of Hebrews, um, if you'll take, uh, you can go to calvaryessay.com and go to the Bible study I did, the first Bible study in Hebrews chapter 6. I think that will be um, a, a study that you, the Lord will use to speak to your heart. But God wants you to come home. Uh, Jesus is is thrilled with you by, by returning to him uh, you're recognizing that, that this has always been your first love. Uh, it doesn't matter what the temple or the synagogue says. Um, you just walk away, walk to Jesus, uh, grab a Bible, start really digging in, and fall in love with Jesus all over again. Does that make sense to you? No, because when, I'm not the, when I was a Christian, I had Christian beliefs. When I became Jewish, I learned all about the I didn't know anything about and I understood now. Now I understand the Christian beliefs, 
and I understand the Jewish police, and I believe both of them, and, you know, they both make sense. Each part, you know, each, each seems to be, you know, like, I, I'm turning my back on Jesus, but I'm also turning my back on a part of my life of six years that made a big difference in my life. And I feel like the big thing for me is I have to be, you always say you have to be true to yourself. I, I don't know what to do. I, re- I mean, I want yeah. to be Christian, yet I feel like if I did that, I'd be turning my back on what I, what I really did believe for the last six years. Yeah, but I mean, what you I have to look at. I, can you, you look recommend at the, a book or something? I don't know. I don't know what yeah. to do. Yeah, read the book of Galatians. Read Colossians. But but let me say this, Bob. You need to look at the last six years as sort of a bad investment, and now you cut your losses and run, and and you're running home. So it, it's not like you're turning your back on Jesus. You turned your back on Jesus when you went to Judaism. And unless you were in a messianic congregation, and that would be fine, but, but unless you're in a messianic congregation, you turn your back on Jesus. Now he just wants you to come to him. I'll have a little bit more on this on the other side of the break. We're coming up to a hard break. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday program, 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. Bob, I want you to listen really, really carefully to me. Um, I know you're not on the phone, but you're still on the air. A couple of things that you said but you really need to reevaluate. The first is this. You said, we're, you know how we're told we're to be true to ourselves. You, you, you don't have to be true to you. That's just worldly junk. You've got to be true to Jesus. You've got to be true to Jesus. And so the way you're true to Jesus is to return back to him. And Bob, when you do that, he's there with open arms. And it's not like you're turning your back on Judaism. What you're doing is you're finding the fulfillment of Judaism. That's why Jesus said, I came to my own and my own received him not. Now you have a chance to come back to the one that you believed in all along. And by converting to Judaism because you loved a woman who was a Jew, you chose a religious system over and above a relationship with the living, breathing God. So don't be true to you. Don't worry about, well, the last six years of my life and the investment I made. What God wants is for you to make a completely new investment now and come home as a believer in Christ, a born-again Christian. And Jesus will be there waiting for you. Think of the father in the story of the prodigal son scanning the horizon daily to see if his son was going to come back home. And when he did, he threw a party. My son who was lost has been found. He was dead, he's alive. And what you did when you replaced Jesus with religion is you made a bad choice. The best thing to do with bad choices is to repent of them and say, Jesus, all I want, all I care about is you. So, Bob, I'm going to be praying for you. Keep us informed if you would. I appreciate it. Let's go to Cindy calling from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, Hi, Cindy. I, I ran across this Saturday, and I couldn't wait to call you. Why did um, Michael Archangel have a dispute with the devil over Moses's body what what could the devil possibly do to a dead body and what could they be arguing about that's kind of my question but I did have a comment on your answer you that you just gave to that gentleman and I thought it was a really great answer I had a friend in Colorado uh, Charlotte she didn't know the Lord I witnessed to her a lot but but she I don't know if she ever got it but um 
I would I would get really I would go and do something really stupid and I'd be really bummed that I failed again. And her comment was so narrow it never left me. It says, Well, can't you just start over and try again? And and that's such a neat you know, that yeah, you can yep. start over and try again. So anyways that's, that's thank you, Cindy. That's the best thing about Christianity, by the way, is that you get all kinds of do overs. All you have to do is have a repentant heart and Jesus will take you by the hand and let's start all over again is a really, really good thing. Cindy, the reason that the, the devil wanted Moses' body was simple. Uh, Moses, the most revered man at the time, uh, second only to Abraham um, in, in terms of, of being revered by Jews throughout history. Uh, if, if he could have found Moses' body uh, and, and uh, given it to the Jews, they would have worshipped him. They would have worshipped him. Joshua wouldn't have had a chance to take over. That's why God sent Michael the archangel. Whenever Satan is involved with something, Michael is Israel's protector. Michael is the one dispatched by God. It means that Michael and Satan are are opposite equals. Um, not Jesus and Satan, Michael and Satan. And so God just made sure that Michael had his body and, and his body was uh, buried literally by God and uh, never never to be found again. So, um, Cindy, that's why. Uh, he just wanted to use the body of Moses um, to be a stumbling block uh, for Israel. Thank you, Cindy, for the question. Let's go to Johnson City, our friend Wes online, too. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, Pastor. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk to you for a moment. Uh, I just got back or got out from a discussion with a family member that got pretty offended by me. And uh, the discussion was about uh, being saved, being born again. And I was talking in general about people that are, are born again, that God gives them a new heart. And, and what I read out of that is that they get a new heart towards God and towards people. My question is... You know, I'm not God. I know we're not saved by works, period. But there's something in me that says, you know, that there should be something uh, to show that we've been born again. And when someone, you know, I think there's believing unbelievers that believe, but they're, I question, and I know I get a lot of heat from well, you know that they think they look at you like you're judgmental, like you're talking down to them when it's just a discussion, and then they mm-hmm. get offended because uh, you're, you know you mentioned that they never read the Bible, that their their interest seems to always be elsewhere, and you know what's the signs that you've been born again as a Christian, and they get offended by this and uh, say that you go overboard and that you preach too much, and that you're not God, and that <laughs> that you don't know uh, who's been born. And that's true. We don't really know who's going to be born again or who's not. But, uh, I'm, and, you know, it just bothers me when the, your loved ones just don't ever seem to be into it. Yep. And, uh, and, and But yet, you know, I was just told, well, you don't know what go, what's going on between me and God. That's what the person told me. Uh, this loved one, a family member, said, you don't know... Uh, what's going on between me and God, but just them taking such an offense and getting angry and their blood pressure going up because you're talking about this just tells me, you know, just evaluate. Are are you yeah. are you saved or are you not saved? Are you born again or are you not yep. born again? Anyway, you know, Wes, say it, something. I, I can. Thank you for that, Wes. You know, it, it's it's as though you touch a nerve, and it's a nerve God wants to be touched. So don't be discouraged. Um, keep asking the questions. Um, one of the things that's worked for me in the past, Wes, when somebody is living a life that would indicate they don't know Jesus at all, uh, but they claim with their mouths to belong to Jesus, I ask them a question, and I tell them, look, I'm asking this honestly. I, I really, truly want to know and need to know so I can effectively pray for you. What makes you think you're a Christian? And then I say, here's a question to think about for a minute. You can answer the first one and then think about this one. Is, have you ever lived even a day of your life just for Christ? And I've not had people able to answer those questions. If they're honest, they'll say, no, I haven't lived a day for Christ. I'm concerned with me. But the idea is, what makes you think you're a Christian? 
You know, in life of a Christian, the, the fruit of the Spirit. And when we talk about works, we're not talking about doing things. You know, a Christian reads the Bible because that's where Jesus is revealed to us. A Christian goes to church because we're part of his body. It's not because we have to. It's because we really, really want to. So if people don't have any interest in those things, um, that, that sort of participation with Jesus, Wes, then it's a fair question to ask. What makes you think you're a Christian? And then you can take them to Galatians chapter 5 and say, well, here's what a Christian looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Do those things describe your life? I've had people get angry with me, insist they're Christians, while they're telling me that they're leaving their wife or they're leaving their husband because they fall in love with somebody else. And I tell them, look, the Bible says that if you live like you're living right now, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. What makes you think you're a Christian? And usually the answer is, well, I answered an altar call. I had a great call at the end of the the, the program on Friday. Uh, one of our regular callers uh, who, who whose, whose heart breaks whenever he hears a pastor say somebody who's coming up the aisle, I can seal the deal, I can promise you heaven. You know, the truth is that we have to let people come it's between them and God. But we also have to tell them that they've got to be genuine. They've got to be sincere. And the one thing Wes never stopped telling people is that if you really have met Jesus, I'm not talking about a religious relationship. I'm not talking about growing up in a, in a, in a Christian home. But if you've really, really met my Jesus, he changes you. And are you different? Since you said you believed in Christ. And then because they're family members and you love them and you want them in heaven, you can say, look, I'm asking these questions not to judge you. I'm asking these questions because I can't imagine heaven without you. Sometimes we can say the way you're living your life, the choices you're making. Appear as though. You're not a believer. And then I think, Wes, we've just got to get ready to be. Targets of their anger. We can take that. We'll survive. But we got to keep telling them. Whenever you touch a nerve that that's that, that's that raw, um, I promise you the Holy Spirit will use what you've said to do his best to convict the person. Short of forcing them to, we know he won't do that. He will use the words that you spoke, the heart that you spoke them with, and he'll use that to try to draw them to the real Jesus. So Wes, I'm thrilled that you love people enough to tell them the truth. And if you offend them, well, Jesus said, offense will come. In fact, the gospel itself is an offense. And when people think, well, I'm a good person, I go to church, I'm trying to do all the good things, that's not the kind of work that satisfies the righteous requirement of God. Transformation, changing, is what God requires. I once saw a t-shirt, West that said, the righteousness that God requires is the righteousness his righteousness requires him to require. And I just thought that was brilliant. And so when you got somebody who's not really interested in Jesus, they're not interested in the things of God, it's a fair question to ask. And when they get defensive, when they become offended, that's not on you. That's on them. Sometimes they need to be offended to think about these things soberly. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Joyce wants to know why do Christians suffer as much or more than people who do not believe? Um, Joyce, I don't think it's really true that Christians suffer more uh, or even as much. Uh, I think everyone suffers. Suffering is part of life in a fallen world. And your question seems to suggest that you expect that God, because we're believers, ought to keep us from suffering. Joyce, he didn't even keep his own son from suffering. Jesus asked him three times, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me. And three times the answer was no. The psalmist writes, Surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, my faith nearly failed when I saw 
and envied the arrogance of the wicked. He would look around and see that it looked to him like all the people that wanted nothing to do with God were succeeding and prospering and everything was fine. And he wanted to know why that wasn't the case with him. Now he got straightened out. He said, I didn't understand that until I entered the sanctuary of God. But when you're in the presence of God, that's when everything starts to make sense. When our focus is outward instead of upward, then we're worried about only us instead of looking at Jesus. We have a, I mean, I've mentioned this on this program before, but every day, a few minutes before four o'clock, we have a large group of kids from the school. They come in and pray for you and they pray for me in the radio program. And uh, today, the girl that was praying, she started her prayer with, Lord, we want to thank you for another day of life. See, that's looking up the little girl who prayed that was on crutches. She could say, these crutches hurt, my foot hurt. But instead, she said, I want to thank you for another day of life. And sometimes, Joyce, when our focus is on us, then the suffering seems overwhelming. So it's not that we suffer more. Everybody suffers. We just, as Christians, we don't have to go through it alone. God doesn't owe us a life free of pain, a life free of suffering. What God has promised us is a life free of pain and suffering in the future, not here on earth. I think sometimes we're looking for heaven on earth, and the only place you're ever going to find heaven, Joyce, is in heaven, not here on earth. Uh, Raymond says, Pastor Ron, do you think people from other religions ought to follow the Bible? I definitely do think they ought to follow the Bible, but they're not going to. Because the Bible was once described to me by a pastor friend of mine as a love letter from God, and the confusion that unbelievers have when they read it is it's because they're reading somebody else's mail. So, yeah, I think everybody ought to follow the Bible, Raymond. But the truth is that we only have the ability to embrace the Word, to follow the Word, when the power of the Holy Spirit lives in us. Um, you've had people question you, oh, you don't believe the Bible's a book written by God, do you? And they point out what they think are contradictions. It's because they don't have any relationship with it. They have no capacity to understand it. And that's because God's Word is written to you and to me, people who believe in Him. And it's not written for mass consumption. So those are the people that we tell them the gospel. And as we share the gospel, the Spirit of God works with our presentation of the gospel, and people sometimes get saved, sometimes they remain lost. But people from other religions, by definition, Raymond, are all lost, and the Bible simply won't make sense to them. hope that makes sense to you. Um, here's an, another anonymous question. This seems to be a pattern, these kind of questions. What difference does it make if someone believes in God or not, as long as they live good lives, caring about others? Well, the difference, Anonymous, is between heaven and hell. Uh, here's the thing, and, and uh, I'm going to deal with this on Friday night here in our Hebrews chapter 7 study. I think we begin in the, in the 12th verse or the 11th verse of Hebrews 7. Um, God's standard entry into heaven is perfection. And Anonymous, nobody is perfect. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that's in the continuous present tense in Greek, so it means that we continually fall short of God's standard continually. So if someone is a really, really, really good person, and they only mess up a little bit, we'd look at somebody like this and say, wow, you're almost perfect. Well, they're not good enough to get to heaven because God's standard for heaven is perfection. And only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus offers us his perfection. And when he does, then we're born again. And positionally, we're just as if we'd never sinned. And heaven is ours. If someone 
cares about other people. That doesn't qualify them for heaven. That doesn't wipe out the infinite distance between them and a perfectly holy God. So you can believe in God in a general sense. You can do good things. You can be a really good person. But that still won't get you into heaven. The standard of heaven is perfection. So anonymous, that's the difference, and it is a huge, huge difference. Uh, Here is a question from Terry. He says, uh, Have you heard of the Jesus Seminar? What is it, and should I dig deeper into it? Uh, Terry, as a matter of fact, I have. You know, when I first got saved, um, the Jesus Seminar uh, had sort of just sort of concluded in the in the late seventies and early eighties. I got saved in nineteen ninety one, um, but it was a big deal, especially uh, where I was doing my studying at the Claremont School of Theology. Uh, it was a very very liberal school of theology, so they had a whole bunch of of Jesus Seminar stuff. Uh, it was headed up by a guy named Funk, uh, Robert Funk. And um, they started out with the premise, this Jesus Seminar started out with the premise that the Bible is not the Word of God, and they were going to go on a mission to find out how much of what Jesus said in red letters in our Bibles, how much of what Jesus said did they think he really said. And it came down, and I'm going to guess here, but it's a very, very close guess, 12-13% of the, the red letters really were things Jesus said. Now, obviously... The things that they threw out were things that had to deal with any supernatural miracles. Oh, that couldn't happen, so Jesus didn't say that. They certainly threw out anything that they didn't like with regard to, to Jesus talking about or addressing sin directly. Oh, so Jesus didn't say that. And so what they did, Terry, is they completely denuded the Word of God. They just tore pages out of it. Uh, and they made a really, really big splash. You know, there's always a bunch of liberals looking to, to discredit the Bible. And that's exactly what they were doing. So that's what it is. You should definitely not dig deeper into it. There is no value. Um, the people that participate in the Jesus Seminar uh, are not Christians. They were not saved. They have no spiritual insight. So you have to just decide. Is the Word of God the Word of God, or is it just a book written by men? And Terry, I've said in this program over and over and over, the most important decision we make after accepting Jesus Christ is, what are we going to do with the Bible? What are we going to do with the Bible? Are we going to believe every word that is inspired and inerrant and from the Lord? Or are we going to make up our own rules? And that decision will change the direction of your life. If you decide as I did that, and I mean I checked it out, I really worked hard at this for a time. There was a moment when I was completely and absolutely convinced that this was God's Word and I've never doubted it since. And people from the Jesus Seminars, even of the time that we have now, they're people that the enemy is trying to use to discredit the Word of God. You know, um, Terry, every time that we, we come around Easter or Christmas, we've got all of these PBS specials and History Channel specials about Jesus. Um, um, again, they're just Jesus seminar types. They have nothing to do with Jesus. They don't know him uh, intellectually. They think they know about him, and the conclusions they come up with are, are devastating. Last question for today. Audrey says, uh, how should women dress when they go to church. Uh, Audrey, God doesn't really care about dress. I'm going to give you one rule, and that rule is dress modestly. Dress modestly. But it doesn't matter whether you dress up or dress down. As long as you dress modestly, Paul tells Timothy women should dress modestly. That's the, the dress code for women. And then the thing that's more important is to get your heart right before you go to church. I tell our people all the time, Spend more time getting your heart right and, and, and your heart ready for church and you getting your body ready for church. But it doesn't matter whether you dress up or dress down. It doesn't matter whether you're formal or casual. If you came to Calvary Chapel, Audrey, you'd see uh, people from all ages, people from every race, uh, people from different countries, um, different backgrounds, different economic 
uh, status. Uh, and you'd see some in suits, a few. Uh, you'd see far more dressed casually. Uh, you'd see a whole bunch of us dressed somewhere in the middle, sort of, of uh, casual neat. Um, but God just wants you to be here. He just wants you to be here. Uh, if you're asking the question because maybe your dress has been immodest and uh, some loving woman has come to you and said something about it, then thank her for it. But if you've been dressing modestly, don't even worry about it. I had years ago a woman in the church uh, who I really thought was uh, her heart was right with God and and she was struggling because uh, some of the women on the worship team, including Paula, she thought their dresses were too short. Well, well, what's too short, I said. And she said, well, they need to go below the knee. And I said, show me in the Bible where it says that. And she said, well, it doesn't because they could cause men to stumble. And I said, well, that's a problem the men have, not a problem she has. If she's dressed modestly, I said, by the way, my wife, before she leaves for church, she asks me if what she's wearing is okay. And as long as you are dressed modestly, Audrey, it doesn't matter at all. Just go to church. Jesus will be delighted with you no matter what you wear. Just spend your time with him. And he'll let you know you're fine. Thank you for the question. And by the way, when, when people come to you, assume the best. If they come to you lovingly, thank them for it, as I said to Audrey. Hey, we've uh, come to the end of the program. Um, let me remind you that we have our Bible studies tonight. Paula will be teaching the ladies in the book of Judges. Pastor Ken teaches the men's Bible study. We have high school age and junior high school age Bible studies as well. A great night to come with the family. It's raining outside, nothing much else to do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.